The mother ran into the bedroom when she heard her seven-year-old son scream. She found his two-year-old sister pulling his hair. She gently released the little girl's grip and said to the boy, There, there, she didn't mean it. She doesn't know that hurts. The little boy nodded in acknowledgement, and the mom left the room. As she started back down the hall, the little girl screamed. Rushing back in, she asked, what happened? And the little boy replied, she does now. (laughs) We really don't have to learn to strike back when insulted or injured, do we? We have an innate desire to, to be right, for things to be fair, and for perceived wrongs to be righted. Our interpersonal and social relationships can quickly devolve into a playground mentality of tit-for-tat, you-did-it-to-me chaos, in which everybody is mad at somebody, where there is no real forgiveness and thus no real peace. But Jesus desires something different for his people. Here in our passage for this morning from our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, Jesus, in the midst of his Sermon on the Mount, lays out, uh, in the midst of laying out a kingdom ethic, the way his people are to live, Jesus declares that his people, the people of his kingdom, are to be people with relationships defined by forgiveness and generosity, rooted in love even love of enemies. As we look at this passage together, we need to allow the context of the passage to be our guide. And in this, we must recognize that Jesus here is not dealing with abstract what-if scenarios that are far removed from real and everyday life. Jesus is actually being very personal here. Jesus is not talking about governments and government regulations. This passage is not even about acts of violence and brutality. And while Jesus' words here may and do give us insight into these things, they are primarily, Jesus' words here are primarily about personal insults, unjust lawsuits, demands, requests for help. And in fact, this very personal nature of Jesus' statement makes them more difficult precisely because they are not abstract rules for far-removed situations. They're commands of the king for how his people are to live within their relationships. That makes it hard. Jesus is literally looking his followers in the eyes, and he says, this is how you live. This is how your social and interpersonal relationships are to be. They're to be defined by forgiveness and generosity, rooted in love, even love for enemies. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is found in Leviticus chapter 24. It's found before that in Exodus chapter 21. It's repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 19. 
This concept of an eye for an eye was God's provision for justice in which punishment and retribution fit the crime. And in the hands of judges and officials, this law actually served to limit excessive retaliation, to limit revenge. It was a control to keep things from escalating quickly as justice was not and still is not for posses, lynch mobs, or vigilantes. But rabbinic teaching... That of the scribes and the Pharisees, that which developed beyond God's intent for the law, was in existence around the time of Jesus. And rabbinic teaching developed this idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, to the point where it is actually written in the Mishnah, for insult, the compensation is determined entirely in accordance with the social status of both the one who caused the indignity and the one who suffered it. It got to the point where not everyone was equal in the eyes of the law. And the punishment was dependent not upon what the insult actually was, but upon the status, the economic, social, ethnic status of the person who gave or received the insult. But Jesus here says, you've heard it said, but let me tell you the heart of the matter. He does this several times in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said that, But I say unto you, he's giving a new kingdom ethic, a new way of being for those who would be his people. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The backhanded slap was a characteristic Jewish insult. It's kind of like a backhanded compliment today. Even more so, more so of an insult. And when Jesus commands the turning of the cheek, he's commanding the breaking of the cycle. It's so normal for us to fight fire with fire. It is so natural for us to grab the hair and pull after our hair has been grabbed and pulled. But Jesus says, don't fight fire with fire. Do not respond to insult with insult, but rather absorb the insult, absorb the injury. Pay the cost of forgiveness yourself. And folks, this has nothing to do with crime and punishment, national defense, pacifism, or just war theory. It has nothing to do with intervening to protect life and stop abuse. It has everything to do with how you will respond, with how I will respond when you are insulted, when I am insulted with a slap, a cutting remark from the tongue, a look, or a Facebook post. Quite frankly, we always look for the exception clauses in which we don't have to uh, obey the, the, what Jesus says. But the exception clauses are often abstract and far removed, which 98% of us will never have to encounter. But you may have actually been an Atlanta Falcons fan watching a Super Bowl with a New England Patriots fan and gotten insulted. For three and a half quarters, I sat trying to be a good sport because the Patriots were being annihilated. And all of a sudden, the greatest of all time, Tom Brady, took over. Let's just say I was exuberant in my celebration. I had only thought about how to be a good sport at losing. I hadn't thought about being a good sport at winning. I asked my wife, a few days later, honey, did I, did I get over the top? Was I over-exuberant in my celebration? She said, Caleb, the f- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Anna said, Caleb, the first victory lap was okay. <laughs> it was perhaps the second and third that went over the top. But see, that, that, that goes to the point, right? We will be insulted. We will be injured in everyday life because we're people living among people. In the middle of July, you get out on Highway 98, you're going to get insulted. <laughs> Especially if you drive the speed limit in the left-hand lane. You're going to get some gestures, people. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to the sharp look, the Facebook post, the cutting remark of the tongue? How do you respond to the insult? Responding in kind is inscribed upon our sinful DNA. Martin Lloyd-Jones called our desire for revenge one of the most hideous and ugly results of the fall of man. And that is fully supported and endorsed by the culture around us, but it is not to be the culture of the kingdom. Jesus' command is for those who are his people, those who are within his kingdom, to respond to injury and insult in a better way, in the king's way. And that is the way of forgiveness. Jesus calls his people to live in relationships defined by forgiveness, and he calls his people to live in relationships defined by generosity. Look at verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. and Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And in these three verses, Jesus brings up legal action, forced action, and true need. And in each case, the command is to give. The command is to live with an open hand, to, to go the extra mile, to respond to injustice with forgiveness and generosity. Of course, Jesus is also the one who said, uh, be wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. Of course, we don't give everything to everyone who asks, but we help. Of course, there are times in which we must stand for the cause of righteousness. Of course, there are times when we respond to a demand, but because it is immoral, with inaction. But I would submit to you that those exception clauses to Jesus' command here are rare and are few and far between. In each case that Jesus gives, Jesus commands his followers to go beyond the letter of the law because his ethic, a kingdom ethic, is a matter of heart. It's a matter of action. Actively reject retaliation and forgive. Actively reject being Uncle Scrooge. Live generously. Actively reject indifference. It's not enough just to do no harm, but positively do good. Help those in genuine need. This ethic, this Jesus kingdom ethic, is a new way of life for, and be a new way of being for a people made new, a people reborn, a people in the kingdom. And in a very real sense, as Jesus unfolds and unpacks his ethic for his kingdom, it goes all the way back, really, to verse 21 and following here of Matthew chapter 5. But as Jesus unfolds and unpacks his ethic for his kingdom, as he unfolds and unpacks those beatitudes, he is defining for his audience, both then and now, what it looks like to be salt and to be light. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Being salt and light means his people have relationships defined by forgiveness 
defined by generosity, relationships that are rooted in love, even love for our enemies. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love, the, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Imagine the surprise of his audience then in that first century when he heard Jesus say this. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking primarily to Jewish folks who have heard that he may be the Messiah, so they come out to hear him. In that first century, uh, Judea is a conquered and uh, oppressed, occupied territory. The Romans have come in, essentially, for over 100 years, or almost 100 years by the time Jesus talks. Uh, the Romans have come in, come in and, and conquered the land, taken control of the land, oppressed the land. They are the enemies of the people. And Jesus says, you've got to love them. Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Love our enemies? What? Ain't nobody got time for that. Love the Roman oppressors? Pray for them? Love those who persecute us? Is Obi-Wan Kenobi really supposed to pray for Darth Vader? Yes. Yup. Notice what Jesus does. He roots the command, the command to love, the command to pray for our enemies. He roots it in the Father's love. The Father loves the just and the unjust. The Father loves the good, the bad, and the ugly. Most of us are all three simultaneously. Notice what he says here. The Father in heaven makes the sun to rise and set upon the good, the bad, and the ugly alike. Rain falls and waters for the good, the bad, and the ugly alike. God the Father loves the Romans. God the Father loves the Gentiles. God the Father, dare I say it, loves the Muslims. If you're a Republican, he even loves Democrats. If you're a Democrat, he loves Republicans too. If you're an Auburn fan, he loves those of Alabama. And if you're an Alabama fan, he loves those of Auburn. He does not, however, love OU fans. Of course, that was a joke. <laughs> you see what he's doing. This is so unnatural, this kingdom ethic. His command is actually very simple. The father loves, and so the, children, the father's children must love also. In fact, I would say that loving is one of those ways in which we show that we belong to the father. I think that's the reason why Jesus says, so that. The Father's children are called to love and pray even for their enemies. And, and this requires of us, this requires Jesus' people, his kingdom people, to acknowledge a pretty basic truth. Jesus' people are unlovable and have done nothing to merit the love and grace of the Father himself. And so any person in Jesus' kingdom must recognize that they are first and foremost citizens of his kingdom because the Father first loved them. And so I think the question is absolutely warranted. How can we say we are children of the Father if we don't love as the Father loves? And this means loving any we would call enemies, especially those we would call enemies. In fact, part of being salt, part of being light, part of being set apart from the world 
is loving like the Father. For you love those who love you. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The tax collectors were like scum of the earth back then. I'm not sure of anybody who likes the IRS now, but it's like infinitesimally more hatred towards tax collectors back then. You're no better than a tax collector if all you do is love the people who love you. Jesus says, love your enemies. Why? Because the Father loves the unlovable. Because the Father loves those who are first enemies. Because the Father goes out of his way to extend mercy and grace. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, says, God so loved the world. That idea of so loving is not a measure of the quantity of God's love. It is a measure of the action of God's love. And what did he do? He sent the Son to reconcile. We then, people in God's kingdom through Jesus Christ, then have the responsibility to be reconciling and sending people, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, even to those who are our enemies, even to those who may persecute us. What a high ethic. What a high standard. What a high calling. Having experienced God's love in Jesus Christ, the people of his kingdom are then to live in and out of that love, loving even those we would consider unlovable, with forgiveness, with generosity, with prayer, compassion, and concern. And at this point, I think I need to say, while all of these things are fundamentally and primarily about the interpersonal and social relationships of believers in Jesus, these things do inform and do direct how the church, capital C Church, should live and act and be. Individual believers are individual grains of salt. They are single burning candles with social relationships defined by forgiveness and generosity rooted in love. But when they are joined together, they become a huge block of salt and a bonfire of light. And if the church is to be salt and light, if the church is to illuminate the darkness and to preserve and make tasty, then in a very real sense, The church is to be the moral conscience of a nation, preaching the gospel, speaking truth, and loving people. And if I can reflect on current events, just for a moment, the church has the duty to proclaim that secure borders, love of enemy, and compassionate care for refugees in need are not mutually exclusive things. The church, as salt and light, has the responsibility to call people to enter the kingdom of God by confessing and believing in Jesus, to live in his way, to according to his ethic, because life in his kingdom and living according to his ethic is the best way, the only real way to be human. The church has a responsibility to love people, even those we would consider to be enemies. Why? Because the Father first loves us. St. Paul in Romans chapter 12 quotes from Proverbs 25. He, he writes that living in this way heaps burning coals upon the heads of our enemies. And I wonder, living in this way, Jesus' people give witness and testimony to Jesus himself, to the king, to the better way of life, to coming into the kingdom. And perhaps, I'm, I wonder if the burning coals that St. Paul is talking about Maybe that's the fire of conviction that will lead 
to conversion. And so maybe it is that when we love our enemies, it's not an exercise for us to become good and sanctimonious, look in the mirror and say, yep, I prayed for that guy. He is so bad, but how holy am I? <laughs> That's not the purpose of the praying for the enemies, but rather the praying for the enemies is seeing that enemy converted to becoming a friend. You cannot, over the long haul, pray for someone who is your enemy and still be enemies. And I wonder if perhaps over the long haul, this is one of the ways in which we are called to be salt and light, to proclaim the gospel, to speak truth, to love people. Living in this way, living as Jesus calls us to live, is then evangelistic because it points to Jesus. Why do you uh, absorb an insult and forgive? Because Jesus Why do you give more than is required because of Jesus? Why do you go an extra mile because of Jesus? Why do you break bread with New England Patriots fans? Because of Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't give his people a choice. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We reflect on this verse and it is, at the, bowl, at, at the same time, it is simultaneously incredibly depressing and incredibly encouraging. I cannot be perfect. That is a shock to all of you, I know. I cannot be perfect, and you can't be perfect either, much less be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. I can perfectly be what I think is perfect, but I cannot perfectly be what the Father has declared to be perfect. But this is not what C.S. Lewis called idealistic gas. Idealistic gas, yes, you know, just hot air. He's British, come on. C.S. Lewis says, this is not just idealistic gas. He, God, is going to make us into creatures that can obey the command. It's a call to obedience, a command to godliness, a command, a call to holiness in action and in heart. The reality is that we are called to this, and the twin reality is that we cannot do this on our own. It's absolutely true. We cannot be perfect like God. It's absolutely true that the higher standard of Jesus' kingdom is one we cannot reach on our own. It is just as true that God provides that which is necessary to obtain it, to achieve it, to reach it. Jesus brings us into his kingdom. He gives us his spirit to transform us into his people in the kingdom so that we are able to live as he has called us to live with interpersonal relationships that are marked not by retaliation but by forgiveness, which are rooted in the love, even of love of enemies, in which we live with an open hand, being generous to those who are in need. We can't do it without God's help. This is true. It's also true that God does what he can and will do so that we can do it. There's a point in which those within Jesus' kingdom must be intentional about living as Jesus commands. In prayer, seeking to be prepared for every situation that may arise in our social and personal relationships, seeking the Spirit's help, the work of the Spirit. How many times when we are confronted with insult or injury do we actually cry out, Holy Spirit, help me? Far more often I'm rubbing the little green lizard who's on my shoulder whispering, do this. I'm just giving him a nice little pet, right? You guys laugh like I'm the only one in here. (laughs) To be Jesus' kingdom people is to live 
Jesus' kingdom ethic in the power of the Holy Spirit, in obedience, in holiness, in action, in prayer, seeking to be prepared for every situation that may arise in our social and personal relationships, seeking the Spirit's help, guidance, and strength, to live as salt and light with relationships defined by forgiveness and generosity rooted in love, even love of our enemies. And that is witness and testimony to the king and his kingdom and life in him alone. And I think I'm done. And I know that I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy and gracious God, we...